this is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Dr. Eleanor Dunmill, an expert in 19th century literary and publishing history. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 3. Uh, this is your bi-monthly Victorian timeline episode where we swiftly covered 10-ish years in 10-ish minutes. And this week, we're focusing in on the rough decade of 1851 to 1860. Should we get started with our kind of around the world in the 1850s? Yes. In 1851, the Great Exhibition took place. In 1852, spiritualism cropped up in England. They were talking to ghosts, y'all. In 1853, smallpox vaccination was made compulsory, and John Snow, who was also a huge part of our next event, administered chloroform to Queen Victoria during her labour with Prince Leopold. Yay for anaesthetics during labour. <laughs> what a treat. Uh, from 1853 to 1854, a cholera epidemic tore through London, um, and Jon Snow was instrumental to figuring out what the heck was going on. Dying water pumps. Yeah. From 1853 to 1855, the Crimean War took place. Yeah, I guess it's not a surprise that spiritualism crops up around that time. Um, Makes sense. This is where, especially like Florence Nightingale and Mary Seacole, the... Yes. Should specify to include Mary Seacole because she gets left out a lot. She does, and I think is like. I wonder why. Yeah, <laughs> we'll drop a link in the show notes about that. Um, so in 1855, a lot of interesting things happened: the abolition of stamp duty newspaper tax, um, sort of kicked off a revolution of daily newspapers. Uh, speaking of which, the Daily Telegraph was established, and it was the first mass-circulating daily newspaper. So this is the moment, the start of the information age proper. Mass media really kind of kicks off. This is where we see, like, panic takes about, oh no, people are reading newspapers all the time, our attention spans are going down. Like, So if you thought that with smartphones was new, it is not. Yeah. No, I, this is my, like, this is my soapbox. I wrote my dissertation <laughs> on, like, media and information technology. Like, yeah, the Victorians experienced all the same problems that we have. Uh, we're stuck forever in weird iterations of the 19th century. Um, mm. But moving on, <laughs> in 1855, Livingston, quote unquote, discovered Victoria Falls in that white colonialist way. And the colonies in Australia became self-governing. In 1857, the Matrimonial Causes Act made divorce available without a special act of parliament. And in other marriage-related news that year, the days of being able to elope to Scotland for a quickie marriage Las Vegas style ended, when it became necessary to stay in Scotland for 21 days before you could get married. Uh, from 1857 to 1858, we see this big anti-colonialist uprising in India that's been referred to in a lot of ways but is 
commonly known now as the Indian Rebellion. There was a lot happening again in 1859, so Dickens launched all the year round. The first Atlantic telegraph cable was laid, and Charles Darwin published On the Origin of Species. And in 1860, the Food and Drugs Act was passed, though adulteration and false advertising... <coughs> patent medicine advertisements claiming to cure everything <coughs> uh, still was a huge issue throughout the century. Um, in other 1860 news, the first official animal shelter in England, the Battersea Dogs Home, was established. And I added official because I'm sure that animals were being sheltered in a variety of ways, always. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, but but as a dog lover, this, this one appealed to me. And it's still like the major... Um, shelter in, like, especially in London, but in the UK generally. Really? Yeah. I was surprised because it's like 1824 is when we get the sort of uh, RSPCA yeah. legislation. So that seemed like a big gap to me between like, let's not be cruel to animals and then like, let's shelter animals. <laughs> yeah, there's more of a gap than you might expect between let's not be cruel to them, but to Let's actively look after them. Yeah. Um, but that is an episode for another day. <laughs> so let's dive in to our segment on major writers, genres, and publications. Um, and before we get into sort of the uh, nuanced, granular detail here, I just wanted to flag the fact that this is very much a tip of the iceberg segment, mm -hmm. not just in this episode, but in the series in general. So this week, I took a minute to run through at the Circulating Library, our favorite resource here at Victorian Scribblers. I think we can say that hands down. There's a lot of things yeah. we love, but at the Circulating Library is our ride or die resource. Um, and it is shows that there were at least 1,765 novels published between 1851 and 1860 in England. So many. Yeah, we are not covering even like a representative portion of those in this segment. Um, but we can flag some themes, mm -hmm. some popular themes. So let's do that. So this decade is one that saw a huge emphasis on the historical novel. And we'll circle back to that in a moment. So readers in this period also witnessed the first inklings of sensation fiction, with works from Charles Reed and Wilkie Collins appearing frequently. Uh, we also see some OG romance, by which I mean fantasy. Uh, so just a quick aside, romance is a genre, um, not modern romance. Romance with a capital R is a genre that actually technically predates the novel um, and often appeared in the form of long-form verse. So think Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen, for example. And it's it's uh, in the 19th century and especially like in the mid-19th century that we see it. Well, no, because to say in the in the long 19th century, we see it sort of transition into the novel format. Um, one notable example from this time period is George MacDonald's fantasies, which some people credit as starting uh, as kind of kicking off the modern fantasy genre. I'm not sure that I agree with that 100%, but MacDonald's work was really formative for me as a young reader, so I couldn't not mention it here. Um, and um, I will probably be talking about MacDonald's work more in our next episode, our next timeline episode. Caught in my brain. <laughs> The period also saw continued interest in silver fork novels, and those are novels focused on the lives of those in high society. And Francis Milton Trollope's 1856 
Fashionable Life or Paris in London is a great example of that genre, as is Thackeray's Vanity Fair, which was published a little bit before this period in 1848. And uh, religious novels, which we haven't really talked about, also uh, remain popular in this chunk of time. And I want to flag Charlotte Mary Young's work for this category specifically. Mm-hmm. She was writing pro- prolifically in this decade and beyond, um, although she was also a popular children's writer. And fun fact that I learned while I was doing my dissertation, the BFF slash pen pal of Lewis Carroll, uh, Young is primarily known as one of the more prominent writers of the Oxford movement. I've put a link in our show notes if you want to learn more about what that is. Um, Her work is also notable for its disability representation, which scholars have explored in recent years. Check out The Daisy Chain if you want to get a sense of what that is. But a content note, um, 19th century disability representation is deeply flawed. (laughs) So gird yourself for some didacticism and a lot of ableism if you do. Um, But that said, not a lot of work like overtly featured disabled protagonists. So it is like this big mm. thing um, and worth taking a look at regardless of the problematic aspects. Yeah. Maybe we do ourselves a bit of a, I was going to say disservice looking for perfection, but also I think it is in itself didactic to say we should only read perfect examples of representation. Yeah. I mean, it is like she is doing a new-ish thing or a thing that, more frequently happened in children's literature than it did in adult fiction. Um, and The Daisy Chain is not children's literature, despite what the title may indicate, make you think of. <laughs> yeah, It's one of those books that I've had on my shelf for so long. Meeting to read. I did finally read it. It's uh, it's all right. It's long, but it's... Move it up the um, to-be-read yeah. pile. So again, this is not a comprehensive list. Our hope is that it gives you some context as to what was being published and read most in the period. And to do a quick deep dive on historical fiction before we move on, because as my master's supervisor, John Bowen, this is very weird because I can read it in his voice because I (laughs) writes in a companion to the Victorian novel, quote, the historical novel should be one of the glories of the Victorian age. No form of novel writing in the period had more prestige. Out of none were hopes higher, hopes of dignity, seriousness, and moral insight. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I did not know that uh, Bowen was your supervisor. That's amazing. Um, so I know, I was like, I'll jump in and take that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense to me. I love it when you can read something in someone's voice. <laughs> I was a little bit guilty when I criticised Dickens, because I can just imagine how disappointed I <laughs> John. But I also think he would understand that I'm coming from a place of love yeah um yeah so i i sort of uh i think that part of why this particular passage uh from a companion to the victorian novel vibed or resonated with me was because um i did my breath exams on sort of like the rise of the novel right and so mm. um I'm acutely aware of how Walter Scott sort of shaped the genre. I was going to say, as, as someone whose like, primary interest, to some degree, is in George Eliot, she worships the ground that Walter Scott treads on. And that led to me. Oh, yeah. And really engaging heavily with Walter Scott. But she's not alone in that. Yeah. So, I mean, 
No, no. She is very much like part of the mainstream mm-hmm. in like fangirling Walter Scott. Um, so, yeah. So if you want to write the fancy stuff, you write like Walter Scott. I'm trying to think of like a modern parallel, but um, I don't know. I, I mean, don't is, know anymore. is um, Walter Scott fancy? Like I know it's... I guess not. Yeah. Maybe... So if you want to write like mm. the well-regarded capital L literature novel, then you're writing in a mood that sort of emulates or calls back to Walter Scott, and that is the historical novel. Bowen provides a a more level-headed assessment than than me, basically just saying they're vibing with Walter Scott, Um, and he points out that, quote, Victorians were acutely aware of the past, end quote, Um, and something that we see in the historical novel, especially in the 19th century, is an emergent fascination with the recent past. So it's not just all like medieval or 17th, 18th century. It's also like beginning of the 19th century that sort of becomes this really interesting focus for novelists. Yeah, because this is one of one of Scott's kind of theories of writing almost, isn't it? It's that historical fiction, he's always looking at like three generations previous max yeah he does focus on recent history yeah and a lot of a lot of writers do pick that up as noted yeah i think that's something that like people say that the brontes didn't write historical novels but they did set them in the recent past even if it's not like exact if even if speaking in terms of genre, it's not necessarily hitting those expectations we have of a historical novel. So even people who aren't necessarily writing historical fiction proper are probably writing fiction set in the recent past and doing some sort of uh, like cultural exposition in that way, I guess. Yeah, and to kind of preempt our list of examples that we're going to talk about, like Romola is the example from George Eliot that people pick up on because it's like she goes back what like 300 years but yeah. almost all of her novels are set 40 50 years in the past like yeah Middlemarch is set around the 1832 reformat in 71 so like she's writing 40 years in the past in Middlemarch but that's not generally yeah. included in the genre of historical fiction even though yeah it's weird because like contemporary writers I mean, sometimes we're writing like things set in the 90s, right? But like often it is sort of assumed that it's set within a few years of the current time if it's not explicitly future, which is often the case as well. So, yeah, it's interesting how like what gets to count as historical and and what sort of slips under the radar. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's talk about some other examples. So I, I, uh, I pitched Charlotte Mary Young pretty hard. She has a, a novel called Kenneth or The Rear Guard of the Grand Army, which came out in 1850. And then Thackeray, who we mentioned earlier, has the history of Henry Edmund Esquire, a colonel in the service of Her Majesty Queen Anne, written by himself because he does not like short titles. And that came out in 1852. <laughs> I think that's a classic like example of what a historical novel Mm. Uh, title looks like um doesn't he also do uh that one that's a movie that i'm forgetting about barry linden is barry linden the one you were thinking of yes yes who was obsessed with that film yeah i've never seen the whole thing because i just noped right out of it but um (laughs) uh 
No, I wouldn't have seen the whole thing if I wasn't, like I say, dating someone who was obsessed. So um, also on this list of notable historical fiction is Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, which came out in 1859. And also a large chunk of Alexander Dumas' work that we will link to in the show notes because there is just a lot. A lot. And a lot of it was historical. Most of the ones that you probably think of off the top of your head actually came out before this decade, um, like The Three Musketeers, for example. But uh, the guy was prolific. (laughs) So while we're on the topic of historical fiction, we should also mention a couple of important nonfiction history writers. The first of those is Thomas Carlyle, who also wrote primarily before this decade. But when we're talking about nonfiction, it takes a little bit of time to kind of filter into the public uh, imagination, vocabulary, whatever. So I think um, his work, uh, most notably The French Revolution, 1837, and even more notably Past and Present of 1843, would, would have been sort of a big uh, influence on the writers of this period. As was Thomas Babington Macaulay's History of England, which was published between 1848 and 1855. Yeah. So there were a lot more people than this kind of crafting the sensibility of what history meant in the period. And for a fuller list, check out Victorian Britain and Encyclopedia. I think there's probably also more information on Victorian Web. And I'll I'll try to find something to drop in the show notes about that. Because I think yeah. while, uh, while Victorian Britain and Encyclopedia is a resource that is amazing, it's probably hard to find these days. Um I don't even know if it's in print anymore. So, But if you want like a doorstopper of a book that's just full of information, you should definitely track it down. The one. Um, so, yeah. So the other kind of major segment that we're doing in these timeline episodes is matters of literary concern. Um, in parentheses, my notes say debates, worries, interests, tech innovation. Um And I'm going a little bit rogue with this section today. There was a lot going on in this period that that trickled its way into both the contents of stories and the industry of publishing. We had, as as, uh, I think kind of framed this episode in our Around the World feature, war, epidemics, capitalism, and colonialism uh, hecking over most of the world. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Mm. Um, A lot of it had a significant impact on domestic life as well, especially for women. So since our focus this season is on the domestic, I'd like to use this section today to sort of dwell on the implications of a world on fire for women. Um, So I've gone rogue and sort of (laughs) done this without consulting Eleanor. Uh, Apologies, Eleanor. (laughs) No, I love it. <laughs> this is what I'm here for. Um, so let's talk about something that sort of st- happens at the start of this decade, the 1851 census, in which Victorians discovered to their horror that there are quote unquote surplus women, <laughs> a-, a plague upon the nation. <laughs> um, so what are surplus women, you ask? Single women who are statistically <laughs> uh, a social problem because there aren't enough men to uh, marry them off to, partly um, because of all the wars 
that were happening at the time. <laughs> and then some of them who were married to divorces. Oh my God. Because that's just become easier for them. So obviously, if they've got a crappy husband, they no longer need an act of parliament to get rid of him. Um, however, were they then supposed to fulfill their very limited purpose in life? How <laughs> were they kept in line? This obviously became the discourse <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, but how does it tie back to the publishing industry? Well, in a couple of ways. Um, one is really the subject of our season. A new kind of like focus and like market for household management books, really. Robin Sheets, who uh, wrote an entry in Victorian Britain and Encyclopedia titled Womanhood, notes that, quote, Although prescriptive literature may not be a reliable indicator of actual practice, the widespread popularity of books on conduct, child-rearing, and household management suggests that they address the needs of middle-class women anxious to define their roles in a changing society. Victorian women were urged to see themselves, their daily responsibilities, and their moral destiny with great seriousness. In other words, the question of what it means to be a good woman, uh, cue the Steve's good woman here, uh, was big business in the nonfiction publishing world. And the question was also huge in fiction, poetry, and even theory and philosophy. So this is the period when we get Coventry Patmore's The Angel in the House, from 1854 to 56, which is now you know, just a, a phrase that any student of Victorian literature should know, because it's just replete mm -hmm. everywhere. John Ruskin debating about or pondering the queen of higher mystery. Yeah, so so women, um, like, in the real world are sort of bursting out of the sphere that they've been held in. And we see this backlash in fiction, like, pretty much right away, putting them on a pedestal as this force in the household who is more than human, who... Uh, is responsible for the moral destiny of the family which she holds together. Um, yeah. Yeah, if you've taken a literature class about the Victorians, you have come up against this concept. Um, Gilbert and Gubar write at length about it. It's sort of like Victorian 101. But mm -hmm. if you have ever been put on a pedestal, you know, like... Uh, can't really live up there right like you're supposed to be a statue not a human so not not a great thing um even if it might on the surface feel nice to be uh worshipped in 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 a way but not really i guess i don't know so we could spend a lot of time i guess if you were coming at this as a purely theoretical concept for the first time you might think oh it must be nice to have people think you're perfect but then that creates a lot of pressure to actually be perfect, which very few humans can live up to. Yeah. And it doesn't allow you to um, like step outside of this like idealized mm. role, right? Like if you step outside yeah. of it, you are not a woman anymore. Um, but there's another way that this ties into publishing because we could rant about the angel of the house all day. So let's move on. <laughs> uh, w women began to see not only that their statistical likelihood of achieving this romanticized ideal state was abysmal, 
if they ever even wanted it at all, queer women did exist, as did asexual women um, who are also queer. I don't know why I broke them out. But anyways, there are people who did not want to be wife and mother. Mm. Um, They also began to experience in greater numbers the possibilities of life outside the domestic sphere. Now, of course, working class women always always were experiencing this. They did not have the luxury of being confined to a domestic space, um, even though those ideals did trickle down and affect them and their perception of womanhood and their experience. Um, But middle-class women, for the first time, might need to leave the house to earn a living um, or be able to leave the house to earn earn a living. So that also had an effect on publishing and uh, art in general. Yeah, middle-class women were writing, editing, becoming photographers and scientists and nurses. So as I mentioned earlier, Florence Nightingale and Mary Seacole were doing their thing in this decade. And over the rest of the century, there was an increase in female shop workers and clerks and typewriters. did mean we might term it, well, typist seems very old-fashioned. This is like um, the female computers where the... Uh, the NASA, yeah. Human and the like physical object become conflated and so you get typewriters and computers. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's also this thing, right? I don't know if it's like as big of a, a thing in, uh, in fiction in England, but in the 19th century in America, there's this like huge thing of like, why are all the novelists women, poor men? We can't get a word in edgewise. Um, Because a lot of women were writing novels and novels were sort of associated with uh, femininity. Um, And that like kind of, uh, there was a backlash against that. And then there's like this thing of like in the modern world that if you think of a novelist, you're probably going to like imagine some dude with bourbon, right? Like, (laughs) yes, I am throwing shade at Ernest Hemingway. Um, (laughs) um, But yeah, so like, the publishing industry in general was uh, one in which many, many, many women were involved, uh, is, I, I guess, where I was going with that ramble. Um, no, I think it's such a valid thing to point out. Like, So many people, when I, when I say that I work on George Eliot, will be like, oh yeah, and she had to use a man's, man's name to get published, which I have... If you've ever spoken to me, I've probably ranted about this, but she did not. That was a personal decision. Yeah. Um, and then I say, well, no, she didn't because women dominated the literary marketplace. And actually, I would have to check the stats, but it was at least the same number, if not more men writing as women. Because yeah. as Courtney just said, that's what sold, actually. Yeah. And, and, and I've set us up. I think we've set each other up here perfectly because those typewriters you just mentioned, one of like there's this famous book, The End of the Century, called The Typewriter Girls. And it's published, it's written by Grant Allen, who is a sensation fiction novelist under the pseudonym Olive Rayner. Mm. Yeah. So here in the 1850s, Pandora's box was officially opened. Uh, And we'll hear about one of the more fascinating literary implications of that in our next Timeline episode. Um, 
as we get to explore one of my favorite genres, uh, which really takes off in the 1860s. So we're going to give our recommendations now. And I think I have two. They might point backwards towards this episode and possibly forwards to the next one. The first one, I was thinking of my favourite things that were published in the 1850s. And I guess I didn't realise how much of a fan of Elizabeth Gaskell I am because I have to recommend Ruth. I think it's even less likely for people to read it than, um, well, definitely less than North and South, possibly even less than Mary Barton. And it's such a, like, Mm. it speaks really well to like the the religious debates that were happening in this decade and also that question of wanton women and Ruth is Mm. herself is a really Mm. good example of that I need to read more Gaskell I've only ever read Mary Barton Q Q horrified like uh, (laughs) gasps (laughs) I think Mary Barton would be my like if I had to say something i might say mary barton mm-hmm. but i would almost be tempted to say mary barton then ruth then north and south because you can always watch mm. the miniseries <laughs> um but yeah it's a really interesting example of a consideration of both dissent and the fallen woman and that was published in 1853 so that's the start of the decade so my other um recommendation is for a novella, so it's a really short story. You can find it online, and we will link to a resource to find it in the show notes. And it is George Eliot's The Lifted Veil. Yes! People don't expect this from Eliot because they hear that she's like a realist writer and she's really serious, and it's all extremely what you expect. And it's this wonderful piece of speculative fiction. Uh, I don't want to spoil it too much, but it's what happens if you can see into the future like what does that actually mean if you're into mm-hmm. personal relationships and it's just excellent so yeah the lifted veil was published in 1859 i think i have probably talked on the podcast about uh, certainly in this episode i have a lot about the fact that george Eliot was kind of my first literary love but um i'm once again hyping up a project that i work on because i am a shameless self-promoter so this is a sister project that I work on, but the George Eliot Archive is a wonderful resource. You can read any of Eliot's works there, including The Lifted Veil, which again is like a 20, 25 page short story. So it's a, if you're intimidated by Eliot because she writes huge books, which admittedly she does, this is a short one. So my recommendation, well, let me back up. So you might think that I was gearing up to recommend you a George MacDonald novel based on my uh, emphasis on that earlier, or even a Charlotte Mary Young novel, which I kind of did already, so I won't now. Um, the, the George MacDonald novel that I really want you to read was published in the 1880s, so um, we'll see if I still feel like that's the one to recommend when we get there. Um, and... Even though last time I promised I was probably going to recommend Bleak House, and you should read it, I'm going to hold off on that too. You probably already know about it, and I'm going to instead recommend Charlotte Bronte's Villette, which many people skip. Yes. Yes. It was published in 1853. No, I think it's better than Jane Eyre. That's like... I I think I agree. It's like... It's it's got Jane... It's similar vibes, but I think it's better. 
Um, and like, it's better. And it ruined my life when I read it. <laughs> I was depressed <laughs> for like a week after, like I had the worst book hangover. Um, but I think it's really smart. A lot of people skip it. You should not skip it. Um, don't miss out on me meeting Lucy Snow, who is amazing. Um, yeah. So that's my, that's my pitch this week. And then also like read The Professor because also a lot of people skip that and it's got some interesting sort of opening thoughts about like mindfulness in a, a really modern way. <laughs> but that's a rant for another day. Um, so if you only pick one, <laughs> read Valette. <laughs> I mean, I... If you only had to pick two, read Valette and Shirley. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Shirley is... Also a really good example of like a historical slash uh, state of England novel. Um, and, and you know, like I have my qualms with Charlotte as an older sister, but as a novelist, she's just, you should read everything that she writes. Almost the same argument about Gaskell is like, read those two because you won't find easily digestible um, you know, media yeah. trails of them. And then watch the awesome Wells Jade Hour and think, how the heck did he cast himself as Rochester? Because that is weird. <laughs> I mean, Rochester is famously supposed to be kind of ugly, right? So I don't know. Mm. I feel like it works in a weird way. I don't know. I cut that out. <laughs> I have, I have, I have like a hard time calling anyone ugly because I just feel like it's made up. Like ugliness as a concept is not real. Yeah, I think I just have that classic like book to film thing where I like have a very clear view and it is not awesome worlds. Yeah, I mean, fair. Anyway, um shall we uh shall we close today by um teasing our, our next bio episode author. The next month's subject cooked for some pretty important people. But like Eliza Acton, this person also cared about making cooking accessible to the working classes. This is how you know it's not Mrs. Beaton. <laughs> it is not Mrs. Beaton. Uh, we'll get to her eventually. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, I didn't line up promo this week because I forgot about it. Do it. Do it. Yeah, so I thought that uh, instead I would, if you've been under a rock and or missed the episodes we mentioned this, uh, remind you that I make a fiction podcast called The Way We Hunt Now, which features a Victorian ghost who has to learn how to haunt by 21st century standards. And if you stick past our credits, you can listen to the trailer. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd. And me, Eleanor Dumbbell. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review or comment on social media. It's nice to know we aren't podcasting into the void. And if you're interested in helping support our work, you can contribute via our Ko-fi page. That's ko-fi.com slash Victorian Scribblers. Or make a recurring tip via our Pinecast tip jar to get access to private content right here in your podcatcher. The links are in the show notes.
If things had gone according to plan, Eulalie would never have heard from us again. One haunting is quite enough for a lifetime. More than that, and the living tend to get morbid. Hang about in graveyards. Hold seances. Wear out Ouija boards. Not that there's anything wrong with those things. It's just... You know that thing modern teenagers do? What's it called? Prank calling. Well, humans who've been haunted too many times have a tendency toward supernatural prank calling. They don't intend it that way. But when you're a ghost getting a barrage of angsty questions from someone you've never met, it does start to feel like some sort of terrible, exhausting joke. Of course, things did not go according to plan. They so rarely do, unfortunately. Even in the afterlife. Um, excuse me? Hello? I just need to get by. (laughs) What did I do to deserve all of these ghosts? At least with Frankie, there was a specific cause. But I haven't been to any thrift shops. I haven't tinkered with any antiques. And yet, ghosts. Everywhere I turn. Oh, that's the way it's gonna be? Don't make me get the rosemary. So, we talk to the humans then? Yes, we talk to the humans. Hot Now Season 2, coming Saturday, December 4th, 2021. Let's go rustle up some humans. <laughs> this isn't a rodeo, Josie. I know that. But it does bear a resemblance 